Welcome to Interesting Times. I'm Joe Streckert. This is an independent, listener-supported podcast. To support the show, go to interestingtimespodcast.com. So this week's episode is going to have something a little different in it. Me. I know, every single one of these shows is run through with my own perspective and viewpoints. It is what I decide to cover, it is what I decide to focus on and talk about, it is the sources I decide to quote. Objectivity, by the way, is a myth. Every piece of media is a form of interpretation. But this episode is going to have more of my personal views than a lot of these episodes have normally had. You see, I just discovered Hamilton. I know, I know, it's been around for a while. And when I say I discovered Hamilton, I mean I listened to the soundtrack several times because I live in Portland, Oregon, uh, not New York City. And really, if you want to experience Hamilton now, you have to just listen to it as a cast album. So I know I'm late to the party on this, but last month I finally, finally took the time to listen to this thing all the way through this rap musical about America's first treasury secretary, and I loved it. I loved it. I felt like a hip-hop opera, a hip-hopera, if you will, about the American Revolution was just what I always wanted but never knew I wanted. I recall vividly the second time I listened to the thing all the way through. I was coming home from a long day. I had been on public transportation, and those last couple of tracks, they really hit you. I very much hoped that when I got home... Um, I would get there before my partner arrived, so I would have some time to, um, you know, collect myself, but no, I didn't. She came up to the front door at the exact same time as me and asked me if I was okay, and I told her through tears and sobbing that I promised to never, ever, ever widow her by dying in a duel with Aaron Burr. So this thing had an effect on me. So I thought about doing an entire episode about how much I enjoyed the album, and with me just, you know, geeking out about how the Battle of Yorktown track is an amazing climax to Act 1, and how it's quiet uptown is the saddest thing I've heard in years, and how much fun it is to hear Britpop King George smack talk John Adams. Poor John Adams. But plenty of people have fanboyed and fangirled all over Hamilton already, so instead I want to contrast it with something. I want to contrast it with other different ways of portraying the Founding Fathers in popular media. Now, this is where my own perspective and experience is going to really come into this episode. Um, when I was in high school, I was kind of a precocious kid. I was on a speech and debate team and mock trial team, and one of my many extracurricular activities was being part of a civics knowledge competition. Um, I and several teammates, we did this thing where we had to answer questions about constitutional law and history and interpretation, and it was simulating a congressional panel where experts would be grilled about what the law is, what precedent is, what the Constitution and case law says. And my team did really well. We won in our state, Oregon, and then we went all the way to the national competition in Washington, D.C., and at this national competition, we got third overall, me and 29 other students from Portland, Oregon. And it was an amazing, amazing experience. It was great to, at that young age, you know, stuffing John Locke and Thomas Jefferson and the Federalist Papers into my head. I loved it. So obviously, during this trip to Washington, D.C., we had to do the town. 
We met up with uh, Oregon's two senators. We also met up with one of Portland's congressional representatives, and she took us up to part of the Capitol Rotunda. And this is apparently a thing that exists. Uh, members of Congress, they go up there and they sign their names on the interior of the rotunda. It's a thing. There is a secret congressional graffiti wall up in the loftier parts of the U.S. Capitol Dome, and when I was 16, I got to see it. It was great. Also, we got an hour of Q&A with a Supreme Court justice. Uh, that was amazing. Um, unfortunately, the Supreme Court justice was Clarence Thomas, and we were all hoping for, you know, not Clarence Thomas. After all, we were a bunch of liberal Portland kids. And Clarence Thomas, to his credit, he was actually pretty enthusiastic about meeting a bunch of high schoolers from Portland. And I know he has a reputation about being silent on the bench, um, but he was pretty animated in our Q&A session. Um, one of the things that happened to me is that I, a plucky 16-year-old kid, deigned to get into an argument with a Supreme Court justice about Buckley versus Vallejo. Buckley versus Vallejo is a Supreme Court case that says money is speech, essentially. And I said, this is horrible and destroying America, and Clarence Thomas told me that I was wrong. So picture that for a moment. Your humble podcast host getting shouted down by a Supreme Court justice at the tender age of 16. That was, that was memorable. But as I am wont to do, I am digressing. When we were in Washington, D.C., hanging out with, you know, Clarence Thomas and looking at secret Capitol graffiti, we had the opportunity to see no shortage of civic art and architecture. And there is a ton of civic art and architecture in Washington, D.C. It's kind of Washington, D.C.'s thing. And the art and architecture in Washington, D.C. ranged from the sublime to the silly. For instance, the Lincoln Memorial is amazingly effective in real life. Uh, my teammates and I from Portland's Lincoln High School, we made a pilgrimage there after we found out that we'd meddled nationally, and we walked around there very, very late at night among the pillars, and we looked down on the reflecting pool, and we gazed up at Lincoln's image, and this is going to sound maybe a little ridiculous, but that feeling was almost spiritual. It is very temple-like. Likewise, the Vietnam Memorial. It is very, very effective at conveying just how big and how costly a war truly is. When you're walking among the Vietnam Memorial and you see all those names, you get a sense that something was lost. Something that was very big and can never be regained was lost very possibly needlessly. However, in Washington, D.C., there's also a lot of really stupid stuff. <laughs> there's a lot of really awful things also memorializing the Founding Fathers that stray into the realm of kitsch. For instance, probably one of the most extreme examples is a statue of Washington, George Washington, the father of our country, wearing a toga and sandals and not really anything else, sitting down on a throne, pointing at the sky with one hand, holding a sword in the other, and he's there, shirtless, ripped, and he looks like he's Zeus or something, creating America by divine fiat. I saw this as a kid, and I could not believe my eyes. George Washington, as this, like, totally ripped mythological Zeus guy who was fathering our country, not from Mount Vernon, but from Olympus. I would later learn that this particular statue by a sculptor called Horatio Greenow is, in fact, sort of infamous. Um, 
The sculpture was, in fact, based on the statue of Zeus at Olympia. Greenow looked up descriptions of what that thing looked like and decided, Washington, he could be our Zeus. And even at the time, in 1832, when the thing was made, uh, people thought that it was a little off, and a lot of people did, you know, kind of mock it. It was in the Capitol until 1908, and it was eventually moved out because shirtless, well-muscled, Herculean George Washington was just too absurd and sexy, even for the U.S. Capitol. But that's not the only example. Also in the U.S. Capitol, and also of Washington, there's a mural on the ceiling called The Apotheosis of Washington, which shows the father of our country in heaven, basically, sitting on a bunch of clouds, surrounded by various Roman gods, and also divine versions of liberty. And there's also a figure called Columbia, who is dressed up in, uh, you know, blue and red classical garment, who is carrying a shield that kind of looks like Captain America's original shield, you know, the one that he's carrying on the uh, comic where he punches Hitler. And she's also got a sword and a fancy hat. And clouds and gods and George Washington and it's kind of like the Sistine Chapel except instead of being all about God it's about America and looking at stuff like this you can see where Bioshock Infinite gets a lot of its aesthetic inspiration I like to think that if George Washington was alive uh, to see stuff like that and apparently George Washington had an uncomfortable relationship with his authority he apparently didn't really like being called president. He preferred general as his title. That's the title that's now on his tomb. I'd like to think that he'd have the good sense to be more than a little um, embarrassed about that stuff, and that he'd probably want to, you know, go to a pub and slam a few shots of Applejack after seeing people deify him in such a manner. And statues in art that make the Founding Fathers look, you know, divine to the point of inhumanity, they're not unique to Washington, D.C., uh, last year at the University of Missouri, students were in an uproar over a statue of Thomas Jefferson that shows Jefferson sitting down, thinking really big, important thoughts, and it really made the guy look like some dude having unblemished freedom thoughts, that they're all great and wonderful, and we should all just sort of sit there and sit next to him and stare at him in awe and think about how awesome Thomas Jefferson was. Jefferson was interesting. He was awesome. Uh, he was also a slave owner. He also opposed a lot of what we would recognize as modern American government. He was a complicated guy, but the statue presented him as simple, as uncontradictory and uncomplicated. It showed Jefferson as blandly good, and I totally understand why people would have been upset uh, at that art on political grounds. After all, Jefferson uh, had slaves, but I also thought that this thing was bad art because it made Thomas Jefferson, a complicated figure, look boring. Lin-Manuel Miranda's Hamilton is something of a rebuke to art like that. Not the opposite, mind you, but a rebuke. Much like shirtless, ripped, godlike George Washington or pensive, uncomplicated Thomas Jefferson, Hamilton does offer a heavily stylized version of history. Cabinet meetings are not actually rap battles, unfortunately. But instead of filing off all of the humanity of the Founding Fathers, Hamilton revels in it. Instead of taking all the humanity away and making the Founding Fathers boring, Hamilton magnifies all that humanity and turns it into a literal opera. 
the characters in the play are larger than life. And they're not larger than life because they are super good or whatever. They're larger than life because they have magnified passions and feelings and desires and ambitions. And they're also, I really like this, more than a few lines in the musical, or as my experience was, album, where they seem to know their historical figures, and uh, they're kind of aware of the narrative around them, and it made them kind of seem like less extreme, less obnoxious versions of Deadpool. I appreciated the fourth wall stuff. But, and this is important, the stylization of history in Hamilton is not sanding the flaws off. And even acknowledging that the fourth wall is there, and even talking about how they all know their historical figures, again, the humanity doesn't go away. Rather, it's a sort of translation. It takes the complicated life of the characters, and it distills it down into a single instance of art, while at the same time acknowledging all that complexity. Hamilton has stylized history, but it's stylized history that comes from summation rather than negation, which makes it very, very different than how the Founding Fathers have traditionally been portrayed. And I say um, traditionally portrayed. I know that there are plenty of other, you know, bits of Founding Father pop ephemera out there, like 1776, which is not nearly as good as Hamilton. Um, And every so often, there have been things that have popped up in history telling tales about early Americans. Uh, The musical Hamilton is not the first time that Aaron Burr, the man who shot the guy, uh, has been the subject of a popular entertainment. In 1861, there was a publication of a book called The Amorous Intrigues and Adventures of Aaron Burr, and I've got to give credit where it's due uh, when bring this thing up and say thank you to J. Rachel Edidin, co-host of The Amazing J. and Miles Explain the X-Men, for alerting me to the existence of this thing. It's amazing. I'd like to read some of it on mic, but I flagged this podcast as clean, so I think I'll just say that there are nuns involved, and we can leave it at that. But the traditional portrayal of the Founding Fathers have been things like, you know, uh, Washington Irving's biography of George Washington, which is not good history, it very much mythologizes him, and you you get what I'm getting at. Um, Hamilton is amazing because it does not show the creation of the United States as something that was orderly or divinely inspired or the work of a bunch of political geniuses all nodding solemnly together, like that one painting where they're all signing the Declaration of Independence together. No, instead, Hamilton is a love letter to complexity, to politics, and to hard work. In that musical, Alexander Hamilton is successful because he works at it. He's ambitious. He is not just inherently talented. He has to be, as he says, young, scrappy, and hungry in order to be at all successful. And Hamilton shows us the Founding Fathers arguing about whether to have a national banking system or not, about foreign policy, about where to put the nation's capital, and one of the best tracks on the soundtrack is called The Room Where It Happens, and it's all about horse trading, deal-making, and how compromises, even shady ones, are sometimes necessary to just get things done. And under it all is the presence of slavery, the big unresolved issue of the U.S.'s founding that just sort of hovers there as if to say that the nation that the characters are making is very pointedly not perfect, and it's not even really finished yet. But in Hamilton, 
the humans who are creating the United States are just that. They are human. And again, that is in wonderful contrast to the kind of traditional and boring portrayal of the Founding Fathers. And on a different note, I also think it is very good that the cast includes a lot of people of color portraying American Founding Fathers. The United States has historically liked to cloak itself in the rhetoric of universality. All men are created equal. You know the drill. Having black and Latino actors step up in the role of, say, Thomas Jefferson or James Madison speaks to that hoped-for universality. It allows for historically marginalized people, people that would have been marginalized by the figures they're portraying, to feel ownership of and for American history. Now, I am a white guy, so I know that I am not experientially equipped to talk about African Americans' relationship to American history. I know that I cannot know what they know, so I am not going to, you know, try to explain it. But Hamilton seems pretty emphatically to say that American history is African American history too, and it is their history to own, to talk about, to criticize, to be inspired by, to argue over, and to make art out of. And again, I don't think I'm well equipped to talk about race, but part of me suspects that portraying Thomas Jefferson as a black dude in a musical is probably a good thing, though I admit I cannot fully articulate why. I'm not one who thinks that every historical movie, TV show, or rap musical should be historically accurate. Sure, if I'm watching a movie with some friends, I'll get really pedantic and point out that such and such isn't right, or that a certain thing didn't happen that way, or that person wasn't like that, because I am that guy and I kind of like being a know-it-all. I have this podcast after all. But I also know that when you're making a narrative, you have to serve the needs of what makes a good narrative. Artists sometimes need to massage the facts to tell the truth, so to speak. Hamilton does that very well. And at the end of it all, I have been more inspired by listening to it than by viewing an overwrought marble statue of George Washington or a mural in the U.S. Capitol that kind of resembles the Sistine Chapel. Seeing that stuff does not make me want to say, crack open Ron Cherno's book about Alexander Hamilton. It does not make me want to join a high school civics competition and eventually win third in the nation. That was fun. It doesn't make me want to start a history podcast, nor does it make me want to be civically or politically involved in my own community. But the messy, the visceral, the nasty stuff does, and Hamilton does. The arguments, the problems, the lateral solutions, the deal-making, that all seems amazing and compelling. Hamilton captures that and wows you with it by having the statues step off of their columns, become flesh and blood, and also speak and sing in a way that resembles contemporary people. Hamilton more so than any sterile statue of George Washington, made me happy to be an American. This show is totally, completely, and utterly listener-supported and ad-free. Uh, please go to interestingtimespodcast.com to support the show. And thank you very much to those of you who already have. Also, I love hearing from you. Find the show on Facebook, facebook.com slash Streckert, or follow me on Twitter at Streckert or on Tumblr, joestreckert.tumblr.com, even better than that, leave a rating and review on iTunes. I always like hearing what you guys think of this show. Thank you folks very much for listening. Talk to you next week. Bye. You gotta go, gotta get